Section 3 of A Change of Air by Catherine Fullerton Gerald. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Section 3 Bessie John sat on a stepladder, mocking her floored husband. You are as glad as I am, you know you are. Haven't we always wanted to be civilized, and aren't we doing it discreetly? Aren't we hanging our own pictures? If I had been the offspring of frivolity and extravagance that you think me, wouldn't I have paid the people from Krantz to do it all? Am I not throwing sops all the time to Cerebus? Have I urged you to give up your work? Did I set up a butler when I was sore tempted? Have I even yet been to a good dressmaker? Did I not say to you in an Old Testament voice, Philip, Philip, they must be real antiques against the day when we may have to sell them? Did I not curb my taste for Louis Cans and Chinese Chippendale, and sally and alone in dangerous farmhouses, buying the four-post bed from under the hired man and the decrepit mahogany from under the boiled dinner? Have I not been as clever as a mendicant and as shrinking as a criminal? Colonial I have forced myself to be, though it's not worthy of me. But brawn photographs upon my walls I will not have. There is a point beyond which rolling in the mud is not Christian humility, but sheer swinishness. And, above all, Philip of my heart, have I ever for one moment since luck came gone back on my manners? The Lord our God is a jealous God, and I have every day tried to prove to him that luck is good for my soul. I haven't wrestled in prayer, it isn't my way, but I have meant to show that adversity isn't the best and only teacher. Adversity, you know, always spoke Greek as far as I was concerned. I was getting near the point of collapse. I didn't so much mind eating off fumed oak and sitting in mission chairs, though they were very uncomfortable, as I did pretending to a lot of people that I liked fumed oak and mission chairs and chafing dishes and the brassware of Russian Jews. Yet I could never say, even to the Orpingtons, that I hated it at all. I somehow couldn't. It's one thing you don't do. Yes, I was in revolt. I wouldn't even be cheerful and go in for wicker. That would have been to accept our fate finally. Worse still to pronounce ourselves optimists. No, Philip, dear, I have behaved very well. I have been very grave about it, almost as grave as you. I haven't danced up and down, and I have made more concessions to your conscience and your gloom than you will ever know about. If I can't help thanking God that I shall never again have to sleep in a white enameled bed, do you blame me? And you can't say I have gone in for anything chic. I don't particularly like colonial furniture. I have a soul above it. But I realize that it's respectable, that one needn't be ashamed of it, that it's not ostentatious. And you can't say that our drawing-room mightn't have been a New England sea captain's front parlor. It's built round Miss Wheaton's chessmen. That's why I asked for them instead of something more valuable. Given the chessmen, I could reconstruct. 
Did you know that old Miss Bean lugged off the whatnot? Do you think I ought to have wrested it from her and built round that? Philip John, fair, handsome, his grave boy's face verging on heaviness, looked up at his wife. I know you hated it all, he said simply. I don't blame you. I've no vocation for knock-down furniture myself. I'm glad, too. Of course I am. I suppose it's superstitious of me, but I somehow thought we'd better go slow. The price of the engravings nearly knocked me over. We can afford them, but ought we to? Isn't it sinking too much of our principal and personal property? But after this we can live on our blessed income, my precious. Oh, you'll see. I shall count every penny of your salary just the same. Can do. Believe me. Philip John sat down in a comfortable wing-chair and gazed upward at his wife. Is it all going just for food and clothes and things? Bessie John leaned her chin in her hand and spoke in a deep, low, chanting voice. He wants to give to the poor. He wants to take a pew in church. He wants to insure his life. He wants to chip bits off his salary and run by stealth to the savings bank with them. He wants to work overtime at the office and to put antimagascars on all the chairs. He wants never, never, never to take a taxi, but always to ride in the subway. She sang the last phrase softly, ending on a minor third. My dear girl, you know perfectly well what I mean, and it wouldn't hurt us to give something to the poor. Bessie John came down from the stepladder and stood by the chimney-piece with folded arms. Pillywinky, it would hurt me. I've done all I care to do for the poor. I've been poor. You can't do more for them than to live as they do. Even settlement workers get a day off now and then. It's many a year since I've had a day off. No, Pillywinky, not the poor. It all goes into administration expenses anyhow. I'm always willing to give candy to a baby, but I draw the line at subscriptions to anything. Any personal charity I feel like expending is going to be expended for a long time to come on you. Understand? You're the most deserving person I know. She crossed to him and put her hands on his shoulders, gripping him hard. Her voice matched her gesture. Nor yet a pew in church, my dear. I praise God in my own way. I'm not going to set up as a churchgoer just because I can have clothes that the usher would be polite to. When I think of it, the thing I admired most about Miss Wheaton was her absence of cant. She wasn't dying to support religion— she preferred to support individuals that she pitied, liked, or respected. She disposed of her money quietly, decently. If she had wanted it used for indiscriminate charity, she would have given it that way, wouldn't she? Or if she had wanted to hold up the hands of the church, she preferred to give you and me a chance to be almost as nice as we really are, and I honor her for it. 
So do I, my dear. His gravity matched her soft vehemence. But she at least didn't think it right to use all her wealth in pampering herself. She parted with it. She gave it, you may say, to us. And that is where it is going to stay. Bessie John gave him a last little shake, then sat down facing him. She crossed her slim hands behind her head and swung her left foot. Pilly Winky, I honestly wouldn't criticize if you really had a passionate desire to support some particular good work. Tuberculosis hospitals? Vacations for working girls? Lost dogs? Or a Keeley cure for hobos? What I object to is your uncomfortable sense that because you have something, you must part with it. Because you have a little more, you must straightway have a little less. That's mere atavism. Your ancestors got in the way of making themselves uncomfortable for the glory of God. Then in the sixties they made my ancestors uncomfortable for the glory of God. They were horrid people, your ancestors, from the start. Comes of reading Hebrew instead of Greek, I shouldn't wonder. But I am not going to squat on Plymouth Rock because I married you, darling. If colonial furniture is going to remind you of your ancestors at every turn, I'll sell it tomorrow and be chic. Really chic. I could do it beautifully, and you'd mind it awfully. So be good. I'll be good. But she threw up her hands, then passed them with a firm, rhythmic gesture over her sleek, dark hair. But nothing. I do think we might leave the ducks and drakes to other people. Miss Wheaton's money is going to go in very queer ways. Let us be conventional and decent and charming. Let us soberly show ourselves quiet, civilized, old-fashioned people. In the end, I fancy we shall show up better than any of the others. Can you be old-fashioned? he laughed. Can I not? Look at this room. Oh, that. It's important. I made it with my eyes open. It's of the last bourgeoisie, and I am going to be bourgeois with the best. I am going to do my duty in that state of life, etc. I am going to be exactly what I should have been if I had grown up in the house just as it stands. I am going to be a good citizeness, and I am going to practice the fine archaic virtue of not attempting either to shock the world or to reform it. I've given my wild imaginings a hypodermic. I'm going to be a nice little vertebra in the backbone of the nation, a happy country with no history, a fine old Sheffield teapot, a traditional American, according to the Indiana School of Novelists. And I? You were all those things in the beginning. I have made a moral choice. Therefore, I am more to be admired than you. Oh, granted. But will you get the admiration? Irony sits ill on you, Philip. No, I shall not get it. I shall only sit at home and deserve it in vain. But in the long run I shall be seen not to have lost my head like some of the others. What others? Some of the dear old mad woman's beneficiaries. Most of them, of course, we don't know. 
but the few we do seem to have lost their heads already. Do you know what Julie Ford did? Spent hundreds of dollars on clothes and sailed for Europe, there to pursue her career. She paints, doesn't she? There used always to be pain on her fingers, so I suppose she does. The last time I saw her, all the paint was on her face. Yes, she paints, but I don't think art is going to be her career. What do you mean? Philip John looked shocked. I mean that Julie Fort has read and talked nothing but poison for five years. I think, Philip of my soul, that she is destined to queer adventures. In fact, I think she has gone to look for them. Now you can't say my idea isn't better than that. Oh, come, Bess. My dear, I don't know, but I have heard Julie talk, and I have seen some of her crowd. She's the adventurous type, that's all. Some very queer people, I fancy, will share her fortune with her. Couldn't you have talked to her? Do you imagine I care what Julie does? I am interested only in proving to you that I am not the least decent of that miserable company which hung on Miss Wheaton's words. No, not excluding old Mrs. Williston, whom I used to call Aunt Blanche, and never will again. Why not? Because she has enough real nieces to domineer over now. Aren't you hard on her? I thought she was rather a poor dear. She is not a poor dear. She is a rich dear. For years she has lived with a married niece and the married niece's large family. Now the married niece is living with her. It's the same house, the same large family. But Mrs. Williston controls them all. Aunt Blanche used to have a hall bedroom on the third floor. Mrs. Williston has the second-story front, and the nephew-in-law goes out of an evening to the YMCA, I suppose. I don't think she would let him set up a club. Aren't you uncharitable? I am not. I went there yesterday to pay her my last call. She was magnificent in bugles and real lace, and as I entered the throne room, I heard her ask a quite good-looking great-nephew if he couldn't give up cigarettes for Christ. I heard him say he would, but he also said damn in the hall. Damn is no word for a boy of sixteen to use, and I slipped him a dollar as I went in. Cigarettes won't do him any good at that age. Of course not, but could I have him jeopardizing the prospects of the entire family by exploding then and there? And a dollar's worth won't hurt his health permanently. If she thinks he has given up cigarettes for Christ, she may let him alone for a little while, give him time to get his second wind. I had no time to talk to him. Did he take the money? He fairly lapped it out of my hand. I've known him a long time. He waited for me on the street corner and told me that they have to play games with the old horror and cheat themselves so as to let her win. No, I don't regret the dollar. If I manage to give any one in that household any happiness that that old hypocrite can't blight, it was all to the good. Next best to that was making her miserable. That wasn't easy. She's so puffed up with prideful godliness. But I did my modest best. 
I think we shall cut each other hereafter. Was that in your newly adopted tradition? Oh, my dear, I have to give my ancestors some show. Otherwise I'd break down. This woman is a mighty influence for evil. She radiates unclean piety. After I made it quite clear that I wouldn't subscribe to any of her funds for putting straitjackets on the wrong people, she turned to vilifying Miss Wheaton, said she had taken to some outlandish religion, was no better than a heathen. I suggested to Mrs. Williston that she use some of Miss Wheaton's money for a special missionary to reconvert Miss Wheaton but I honestly think she prefers to consider her irreclaimable. I even asked if she wouldn't find the semptress, Miss Bean, you know, an invaluable co-adjutor in her good works, now that the old thing is a leisured woman. You seem to have done the thing up brown. What did she do? My dear, Bessie John's voice shook, Mrs. Williston is a snob, I fear and I regret to say that old Miss Bean has joined the Holy Rollers, if you know what they are. It didn't go at all. So I did. And now the stepladder must be removed, and we must dress for dinner. The two got up simultaneously. Mrs. John's account had brought laughter into the air, yet Philip John's laughter was nervous and quickly spent. His wife, seeing it, came over to him and rested her hand on his shoulder. "'You don't trust me to turn into the right kind of person.' He put his arm round her, but did not meet her eyes. "'You've always been precisely the right kind of person, Bess. I suppose it's all right. You may be sure it's all right.' She laid her cheek against his arm and looked steadily away from him at a dark old highboy. Nothing can be wrong while I admire you as I do, and for the first time in my life I am permitting myself to hope. To hope, do you understand, Philip, that we may have sons in your likeness? That is another difference that Miss Wheaton is going to make. Philip John stood tongue-tied an instant in the twilight. Then he crushed his wife to him, looming above her, enfolding her, her slim form vanishing utterly in his embrace. Still tongue-tied, he let her go, caught up the step-ladder like a negligible thing, and carried it out of the room. Bessie John walked to the big window and looked out into the gloom. "'I might have known I needn't worry,' she whispered to herself. "'I had the ace of trumps all the time. "'I might panel the nursery with teak.' so long as it was a nursery. There's not a man in the world, I believe, won't fall for that. And it's not a defeat for me, either. Her words came so low that she could scarcely hear them herself. For I chose colonial, and it goes, heaven knows, with that. Like any other verbalist, Bessie John felt better when she had summed a thing up, even under her breath and in solitude. She passed quickly out of the room by another door and upstairs. End of section three.